Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC. Today I'll be looking at Psalm 115 and Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 34 begins the Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. Though I'll read all of Lord's Day 34, I'll be dealing mainly with question and answers 94 and 95. First, this reading from Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children, May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And now this reading from Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is God's law? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, 
or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables. The first is four commandments, teaching us how we ought to live in relation to God. The second is six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. And what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God, who has revealed himself in the word. The novel Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry tells the story of Hannah's life in the small town of Port William. In Port William, she got married, raised a family, managed a farm with her husband, and experienced rich community with her neighbors. But as she grew older, all those good things began to fade. Her children grew up and moved away. Port William slowly dwindled in size. It wasn't clear when or how, but at some point it stopped being a community and started being a bunch of houses, disconnected from one another. Then her husband died. Managing her farm became nearly impossible at this point. A few remaining neighbors enabled her to get by for a few years, but she knew it was only a matter of time before she would have to give it up. Looking back on her life, Hannah was often tempted to wrap herself in self-pity and nostalgia. This temptation became more intense when her grandson appeared one day. His name was Verge. He had lived a life of rebellion, angry at his parents for divorcing, but he eventually hit rock bottom and went to the only place that ever resembled a home to him, his grandma's. Hannah welcomed his grandson in, let him stay as long as he needed, fed him well, and gave him work to do. The work seemed to do him well. Verge enjoyed working on the farm. He seemed to be getting better. As Hannah observed his grandson heal, finding joy and purpose through work, Hannah caught herself daydreaming from time to time. She found herself dreaming that maybe Verge could take over the farm, care for Port William, and bring community back to the small and dying town. It was a dream she wanted to have, but she knew better than to hold on to it. As she states, this Verge of mine, I must care for him as I care for a wildflower or a singing bird. No terms, no expectations. She provided everything needed for Verge to thrive and do well, but she knew better than to put all her hope in Verge. Not only was Verge human, prone to stumbling and messing up, but there was also no guarantee Verge would like farming long term. It wouldn't be right to put such expectations on him. There is a lot of wisdom in holding on to the things and persons we love with an open hand instead of a clenched fist to care for the good things in our lives like we care for a wildflower or a singing bird. No terms, no expectations. For when we cling to that which has been given us, when we hold on to it for dear life, 
When we have it in such a way that we can't part with it, whether that be a dream, career, family, education, or otherwise, then we may be clinging to a God. We may have another God before the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. The first commandment states, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, in his catechism states, it means, you shall have me, that is, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, alone as your God. It is like saying, see to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. In other words, whatever you lack of good things, expect it from me. Look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, call and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only do not let your heart cleave to or rest on any other. This first command is really dealing with the heart. As Martin Luther also says, whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. We have the true God by setting our heart on him, by recognizing him as the source of our every blessing and good that comes our way and our help in time of need. And we have other gods when we set our heart on other things, seeking good and blessing from them, as if good and blessing somehow resided in them. So this command is a matter of the heart. The heart, biblically speaking, is the seed of our longings and desires. The human heart longs for what is good. We each harbor a vision for the good life, and it is our heart that chases after it. The heart is like a compass that continuously directs and guides us to whatever we have determined to be the source of all that is good. So it is important that we know from whom all blessings flow. For whomever or whatever we think all blessings flow from, that is where our heart will guide us. That will be for us the true north of our hearts. It's easy to think our hearts are set on God rather than the God's but much harder in practice to do so. That is because, as the prophet Jeremiah states, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So often we think our heart is guiding us to God, only to discover later that we were in reality chasing an idol, something that masqueraded as God, but was in reality a false god, an idol. I think this happens in our ordinary lives quite often and easily. Our hearts want what is good and quickly cling to the good things in our lives, forgetting from whom these good things come from. This often happens, I think, with family, career, health, education, power, and money. These are gifts from God. But if the source from whom the good gifts come come from is obscured or ignored, then the gifts become an idol. Idolatry, the Catechism reminds us, is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God, who has revealed himself in his word. That's what tempted Hannah in the opening story. She saw a lot of good coming out of Verge working on her farm. She was tempted to see that good as everything. She wanted to see Verge as the source of all her future happiness and help, the one who could take care of the farm and her as she grew older. He could restore the community she so desperately missed. But to cling, she realized, would be foolish. 
Verge wasn't a god, he was a recovering drug addict. Better to treat him as you would care for a plant, with patience, care, tenderness, and an open hand, knowing that plants come and go. Some are tempted to turn health into a god. They seek it with all their heart. It becomes an obsession. It promises visions of grandeur. It whispers, then you will have a pain-free life, free from sickness and pain. But we know from experience the young and healthy die, and sometimes a chain smoker will live to the 90s. Health is a gift. It is meant to be cherished, not turned into a god who dictates every aspect of our lives. Another temptation that I think is relevant to our times is politics and power. This has become a national obsession. With it has come competing visions of this nation, increasingly at odds with one another, each claiming to be able to save it. So it's worth reminding ourselves what God thinks about earthly power. In Isaiah it says, God sits enthroned above the circles of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. To those who make power the source of all blessings, a false god and an idol, God promises to reduce to nothing. We have been warned. Our hearts want what is good. We all seek the source of that good, the fountain from whom all blessings flow. But too often we take what is good, like family, wealth, power, education, career, our health, and cling to it as if it is the source of all that is good. We grab it and make a god of it. We turn these good things into idols. And as idols, we rob these good things of their goodness. We turn them into lifeless figments of our imagination that cannot speak or talk or walk or smell. Verge taking over the farm. Health that never fails, power that doesn't corrupt. These are lifeless ideas, idols of the heart, that ruin what is good in those who worship them. Psalm 115 was written to remind idol-making hearts such as our own to seek our help and salvation and all that is good from the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. The psalm begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. This is another way of saying, help us to live for your glory, God. Help us to live as you have designed us, which is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. What God's glory is, is highlighted in Exodus chapter 33. This story comes shortly after the golden calf incident. In the golden calf incident, God's people grow restless because Moses disappears on Mount Sinai. They aren't sure who will lead them or what's going on. So they ask Moses' brother to make them an idol. Aaron agrees. He makes them an idol. The people then worship this idol. God gets angry. He even tells Moses, you lead these people. I'm done with them. But Moses objects. The promised land is nothing to look forward to if God doesn't accompany them. Moses insists that God's glory go with them. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. What God revealed there to Moses is that his goodness is his glory. God's glory is his goodness revealed, his compassion, mercy, 
and forgiving patience. That's God's glory. That's what God promised would go with Moses and the people of Israel. That's what God promises will go with all God's people, his goodness, mercy, and compassion. That is his glory. This takes on an added depth for us who have received what Christ has done for us. Jesus often spoke of his hour on the cross as being the moment when his glory would be fully revealed. It was when his goodness and the greatness of his love became fully known. On the cross, he showed the depth of his love for sinners, dying that they may be forgiven and be brought into new life. In Christ's death on a cross, in those hours of darkness, God's glory and his goodness shine most brightly. Christ is the light who shines into our darkness and exposes our idols for what they are, gifts that are to be enjoyed, not clung to. When we cling to our idols, we become like them, seeing how idols are lifeless, empty visions, and false. So we also will become like them, empty and false. We will become lifeless ourselves and unable to praise the Lord. But we are those who can say to God, who has made his glory known in Christ, who has demonstrated his goodness to us by washing our sins away, our help and our shield, bless us, save us from idols, keep our hearts set on you. This doesn't mean, though, that we can't enjoy what is good, that we can't enjoy the blessings of God. What's the point of seeking blessings from God if we can't enjoy those blessings? But those blessings must be enjoyed with the right attitude, with an open hand and gratitude as gifts from God. The first command requires that we seek all blessings from God, that we acknowledge God as the source of all that is good and seek him as our help and shield. Our hearts seek what is good. True north must be God. When true north for our hearts is God, then, to quote Martin Luther again from his catechism, then we may live right and straightforward and use all the blessings that God gives, just as a shoemaker uses his needle, awe, awl, and thread for work and then lays them aside. Or we may behave like a traveler using an inn, food, and bed only to meet his present need. Each person may do this in his calling according to God's order and without allowing any of these things to be his Lord or idol. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I went on vacation to Wisconsin. We stayed at a cabin on a lake with my siblings and parents. We enjoyed that place, the time with family, swimming, late nights playing board games and volleyball. But when the week came to an end, we packed up and went home. We enjoyed it and then let go. That is how we are to enjoy the earthly blessings of this life. They are temporary, not permanent. They are gifts from God meant to be used stewardly and generously in thanksgiving. We must be ready at all times to part with them, whether that be family, education, power, wealth, or career. Such partings will always be sad and give us grief, but the goodness of God we can trust will sustain us through such times. We should be willing and ready to quote, to quote Hannah Coulter, to leave here open-handed with only the ancient blessing, Good my, goodbye, my love to you all. It is with this attitude that we will be able to sincerely acknowledge the only true God. Trust him alone. Look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently. Love him, fear him, and honor him with all my heart. It is with this attitude that we can obey the first command 
you shall have no other gods before me. Thanks for listening. My next sermon will be on Exodus chapter 32 and Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the second commandment. Thank you.